Welcome to the Everyday Innovator Podcast for product managers, leaders, and innovators. Your host is Chad McAllister, helping you become a product master. Listen and get ready for higher performance, for the doctor is in. Hi, this is Chad, and this is where product leaders and managers become product masters, and I'm changing the name of the podcast to reflect that. It's going to be Product Mastery Now. The new name is coming soon, and you don't need to do anything different to keep listening, but it's going to show up differently in your podcast player, not as what it has been, the everyday innovator, but now as Product Mastery Now. The logo will look the same, so that will help. Now, for this episode, I expect this is going to be really valuable to you because it's focused on how you can get better at making products, which is a topic important to all of us in product management. I'm joined by Heather Samarin and Vidya Dynamani. They are the co-founders of Product Rebels, a product management leadership training company. They have enormous experience in product management, delighting customers through product market fit. And if you hear anything you want to go back to from the discussion, we take notes for you. You'll find all those detailed insights at theeverydayinnovator.com slash 327, along with a one-page action guide to help you and your group have a discussion about these topics, as well as to take action on them now. Now to the discussion. Heather and Vidya, thank you so much for joining the Everyday Innovator podcast. Thank you. Glad you can be here. And by the way, I'm just starting to tell guests this. The name of the podcast is changing. So it's soon going to be known as Product Masters Now. So we're getting a new name after six years. Wow. Things change. You know, you know what that's like in product. Both of you have been around product work for a very long time. And I noticed in your bios that you both spent a fair bit of time earlier in your, in your careers at Intuit. And I've ran into a few people who have that similar Intuit kind of background that kind of seem to be instrumental in their experience. I'm just curious, what was it like for you? And, and did that kind of shape your beginnings in product in some way or another? Absolutely. You know, both Vidi and I were there for about 13 years. And and I, I think there were a few things that really resonated and 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 sort of took our careers to where they are today, which is the first one is just sort of sitting in customer shoes. And we did that through a lot of observational research, right? Being a product leader, you're, you usually work with UX designers and, and the like who do a lot of the research. But at Intuit, we got, we rolled up our sleeves and we were actually part of that, right? We did what we called, the program was called Follow Me Homes, which is a little creepy now that I think about it, but it's, it was a fantastic program. We'd follow folks to their homes, watch them actually file their taxes, find them struggling to find documents that they needed as inputs into their tax form and where they were and how they had to drum them up and, and where the shoebox of stuff was and, and having that base of, of sort of customer empathy actually enabled us to have many successes in in just understanding the customer's pain and the customer's problem before even talking about a feature. And and so it was, I think it really stuck with us in our career. And that's one of the driving forces behind what we do and why we do it. You know, and I just want to add that there's, you know, we've got to learn from the best. We got experts coming in and, and teaching us firsthand and one of them I clearly remember from an innovation perspective was Clayton Christensen. Just incredible to, to learn from him. And he helped, along with a bunch of other sources, introduce this program called Design for Delight. And that was Intuit's version of thinking about innovation. 
And it was very much based on what Heather just talked about, you know, observation, getting out there, experimenting quickly, getting feedback from customers all along the way. And I think those are the practices that no matter what we did, that customer learning was infused into whatever decision we made in product. And said the program was called Design for Delight. Yeah. Yeah. I love the name. It ended up being D for D, I think, over time. Yeah, D for D. <laughs> Good. Because the aspect of delighting the customer, right? And what you did right. in the follow, follow Me program. And it's something we, we've talked about many times on this podcast is the importance of user empathy and actually knowing your customer's problem. And occasionally, I remember this one heartbreaking email I got from uh, one listener that said, you know, I've been listening to your podcast for a long time, and I've been wanting to get in a product, and I just had this interview, and they don't talk about the customer at all. And I, I, I was really kind of surprised. I'm like, I'm, I, I know that happens. Uh, I know one organization I, I ran into, they prohibit their product managers having contact with customers. Like, how can this be, right? <laughs> the, yeah. This is what we need to be doing. So. We do see that. We actually do see that. And it's it's heartbreaking for them, right? How can you make product decisions, product trade-offs without actually seeing and, and feeling their pain, their customers' pain? Mm-hmm. I think prohibiting is so difficult. I, you know, we, we've come across um, different teams where they haven't thought to. They, they've reached out internally to their sales and accounting team, but it hasn't been a no. It just hasn't been an option And so it's always really exciting when we introduce that option and when they do their first set of interviews and and get to see the customer. So the excitement is palpable and and just being able to learn firsthand. Yeah, I think it's very important. Uh, I have mentioned a former guest a few times, uh, Ben Britton. He is the uh, Global Innovation Director for Snap-on Tools. And his approach to innovation is very straightforward. Spend four days a week with the customer. Oh, I love it. It's been a, a little more challenging with COVID, but that's you know, for years, how the innovation program has been run. And he's out four days a week on site with customers, observing their work, talking to them, watching what they do. And he cycles through, right? He brings with him every trip, someone involved in product, yeah. right? And so the product people are getting out there too. Well, it's a great point. You know, I, I think in the years that we were at Intuit, our CEOs at the time would do follow me homes, right? So they, mm. they were an absolute, you know, demonstrating the, the culture of what we wanted is to see it, live it, you know, and, and feel it if you're anywhere around trying to design or, or develop products for Intuit. And it was, it was hugely impactful for me, but also influential for the development teams who would also go on these follow me homes with us. And you just, I just don't feel you can be a good innovator without it. <laughs> you know, it reminds me of this is really funny time where we were all, I was, when I was on TurboTax during, you know, the time around April 15th, we all had to get every single person, it was all hands, we had to get on the phones and and talking to customers. And that meant and answering calls. And, you know, that's a really fraught time, right? It's like the very worst thing. You know, you're watching the clock tick down and you've got a problem. And so you're talking to people at their their highest level of pain, desperate to kind of get their question answered so they can actually do something that's legally required. And I remember sitting next to an engineer and he was talking to someone and he was trying to help them and it wasn't getting through. And they suddenly realized that there was an issue from us, from our point of view. And he just rushed off and he spent the next five, six hours working on that problem because he understood it. He understood exactly what it meant. 
And you know, you can't you you can't pay for empathy like that. So that's wow. where I think it's so important. I love that story about how he brings someone with him every single time. That's fantastic. That's what we need. We need to be out and observe customers. And you have a great deal, both of you, experience doing this in other settings too. And now you help other organizations, you know, with their product development, their innovation. At your company, you co-founded uh, Product Rebels, and we're talking because you introduced a book to me that you have have worked on recently, both of you, called Groundwork: Getting Better at Making Products. And thank you for sharing that with me, making me aware of it. As I look through that and then kind of, you know, what your backgrounds are like, I really kind of, you know, see it as your life work in terms of this is how we approach product, right? A lot of depth in there and very practical insights. And we're going to talk through a little bit about that. But first, tell us about the product that you were encountering that led to you saying, let's take, you know, no small effort here, right? Developing a a book is, you know, like any other product that takes energy and work. And what led to making that happen? Yeah, really good question. You know, we, I think through the years, Vinny and I have hit many of the pitfalls that we see in our clients nowadays, right? We see product teams and product leaders and founders have struggled to say no of great ideas that are coming in from investors, your CEO, your sales team, and, and, and all of it. Wow. This is a really uh, great idea. I can't justify saying no, so let's put it on the backlog, right? Let's put it in the priority list. And what you usually end up with is just an overwhelming set of priorities and, and, and struggle to figure out where to put your next investment, where to put your effort. And, and I think we saw it in two venues. One is, you know, Vidi and I do a lot of mentoring and coaching of, founders and, and, and entrepreneurs, and then also product teams. And what would happen, you know, in the founder realm and sort of the startup realm, you'd, you'd find that in uh, investors would sort of shy away because there was no clarity on where you're going to be spending your money. Where was the priority, right? What was the biggest opportunity that would then start to generate income that would drive uh, ROI? Uh, the second is in the, you know, sort of the product team where they were just struggling to make decisions, right? And, and, and I think we, we kept seeing this over and over and over again. And I think, you know, Vidya has a couple too that we just, it was painful over time. And, and we, we learned some tools and tactics that enabled us to, to solve it. Yeah. I'd, I'd say the reason we, we came to this is that we kept diagnosing the same problem over and over again. Yeah. And, and no matter what, and there was nuances based on industry or team, but people would bring us in trying to maybe develop a new product or come in and say they were listening to customer issues. And what we did was we you know, got to talk to the teams, got to talk to the leadership, and over and over again, we, we heard the things that Heather just talked about. And then we heard a couple of other common themes around people just arguing about features and, and using their opinion. And so it was like the loudest or the highest paid person in the room would, would get the say versus the customer. And so when you started seeing themes like this over and over again, you found that you ended up with unhappy customers, but there were these things that were in common, regardless of the size of team, regardless of the you know, where the industry was, what they were working on. I mean, we're not even, you know, sometimes we, it sounds like we're more technology and, and SaaS, but whether it's B2B or B2C or whatever they were doing, marketplaces, there were these common problems in place 
And so we thought, okay, we've got to bring it back to the basics. We've got to bring it down to these are the things that every team, if you start here, then everything else will go better. But when you don't have these things in place, all of these the conditions that Heather talked about, the opinion-based debates, the difficulty in making decisions, kind of having this like, you know, different people telling you what to do, not being able to make a decision, all of these things just, just come into play. So we wanted to kind of get to the root cause ourselves. Yeah. And let me add one other thing to that, right? These challenges that we continue to see, Vidya happened upon, you know, you had an unhappy customers. The reason why you have unhappy customers is you're trying to solve for everything. You can't say no to one thing. You can't focus where you want to delight or who you want to delight because you're trying to do everything, right? And so you end up with bloatware or you end up with a very confusing value proposition. You don't know where to focus and driving engagement or, or, or conversion. It, just become sort of the product, right? And and a ton of features and what's the next feature? And that those root causes that we talked about really ended up making unhappy customers. And so uh, so that's I just wanted to make sure we we're connecting those dots between the the problems we saw and the implications of those problems. Heather and Vidi are sharing important information to help you be more effective and we'll be back with them in just a moment. Being more effective and improving performance is what product VPs and CPOs want for their product managers. There are many pressures driving this, including creating better products in less time to beat the competitors. That is why I created the Rapid Product Mastery Experience, the RPM Experience. This is a nine-week journey meeting virtually for 75 minutes a week. I take groups of product managers and organizations on this journey, building a broad foundation of product management knowledge and at the same time getting everyone moving together while also improving collaboration and renewing a focus on the customer. Product managers feel empowered and more confident about their work and how they create value for customers and their organization. Many organizations have already benefited from the RPM experience, and you'll find them listed at theeverydayinnovator.com slash RPM. Now, the RPM experience is unique. It is truly unlike any other training you've seen. It creates buy-in that results in real change and improvement. Check it out at theeverydayinnovator.com slash RPM. And then let's talk to understand if it will help you. Now let's hear more from Heather and Vidya. thing that stood out to me, these were common problems, right? Problems that you saw over and over and over and that we still see right. over and over. And ha- having a guidebook to help us with this is very yeah. important. So when I looked at that guidebook that you have, uh, ground, the groundwork, you break it into two big parts. Kind of the first part is like the foundation, which is called the groundwork. And then the second part is the practices. Can you give us a little overview of each of those? And then we'll dive in where we can with the time we have left. Absolutely. So, you know, we start with what we call kind of pillars. These, the things that we need to establish on day one, whether it be starting with a hypothesis and then evolving through research and and validating through research and those being sort of the jumping off points for strategy, design approach, major trade-off. And those pillars are what we call convergent problem statement. And we go into a ton of depth into what convergent problem statement is. I think everyone knows what a problem statement is or what the problem is, but we we really try to figure out how to define a problem in a way that drives focus. 
Um, the second is in an, a persona, which a lot of people's eyes glaze over when we talk about personas because they've got a bad rap over the last decade or so. But actually knowing who you're going to be solving that problem for in a very actionable way allows you to make trade-offs confidently. And then the third is what we call individualized needs. So taking each of these folks that you want to solve the problem for and knowing them intimately, understanding their needs at a level of what's the most painful? What are their environmental contexts that drive implications to the problem we're trying to solve? Um, and so those three, if we've got those established, those are the great, that's a really great jumping off point for good decision making and focus. And I just want to kind of cover, once we've got the foundation, you talked about the three pillars that, that forms the, the actual groundwork. What we wanted to do is say, well, how, right? How do you go about this? And what are the daily practices that allow you to get to those three pillars in a consistent way. And so it's it's three tools or three practices that we want every product manager. And in fact, beyond product manager, there's, there's a lot of designers we've talked to. This is really applicable to anyone working in product. And those are developing a hypothesis so that anything that you do, and we talked so much already about following customers and listening to customer research. You know, unfortunately, a lot of the time when people do that, it's wasted because they're not actually going in with a clear point of view on what they want to learn. And so anytime you want to talk to a customer, it's it's not just show up. It's it's think about it. You know, spend a little bit of time and all everything we do is 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 very actionable. It's it's very pragmatic. So it doesn't take very long, but have a clear hypothesis about what you want to learn. And then we have this term that we call scrappy research. It's it's we love it because it really means that you can be researching every single week. And what we want to do is to give tools and, and the know-how that any product manager, anyone on the team can go learn from customers in a really simple way without a ton of money and a ton of resources behind them. This is really an individual that can just do it. And then the last practice is getting commitment. And I know this is hard, right? Because at the end of the day, we don't get to make the decisions. We work in a team. There's there's leadership, there's executives, there's a board involved. Not one of us as in working in product gets to have the final say. So how do you do that? How do you get to that place where you're convincing people and everything again comes back to the customer, but it's how to frame that information in a way that gets you to a decision that you can then go do something on. So the three pillars that Heather talked about plus the three practices to get or make up groundwork. Excellent. And what I like and why I hope uh, listeners will, will check out your book, uh, The Groundwork, is because, you know, when you just described that, I think a lot of us have been in product for a little bit of time. Um, first, relate to all of that, but also we, we, we know that there's pieces that, that, that come from a lot of different places, right? And so we can hear some aspects of, of lean in there. Oh. We can hear some aspects of, of customer design and empathy in there and scrappy research that sometimes people just forget about and putting those together into a system to help us think through how do we actually, um, back to your intuitive days, you know, delight customers and come up with a product that does that and get the organization moving, the decision makers moving along with this as well? Why don't we spend a little time talking about that, that first part, the, the actual groundwork pillars and, and what it means to get those in place? And I, I think you said the first one is convergent problem statement. And whichever one of you would like to tell us about that first, go right ahead. So it's really interesting about a convergent problem statement because the way that we think about it is most of us, we're problem-solving creatures. And what we want to do is we want to go solve things, right? We want to go build things. That's why we're in product. 
and you get to see something that you think is a pain point and you think is a problem. And our minds instantly jump to, well, what am I going to do about it? And so what we talk about is how do you pull back from that? How do you pull back from the urge to go do something and solve something and instead really sort of focus and think about the problems the customer is having? And it's not just one. So in this ability to observe and watch and, and really understand the customer, we're going to define a number of different problems the customer has. And so, and this is kind of, again, maybe going back to some design thinking, you know, going basically looking at divergent thinking and then convergent. That's what the concept we were trying to bring in is go broad, think a lot about the different problems that customers have and then pick one. And, and it's really important. It's this choosing deliberately based on a broad set and having that communication and buy-in from everyone around you to then converge on a single problem that you can then go and think about. And it's interesting because the definition that, that we actually have, a convergent problem is the way we define it, expresses the difficulty or the pain the customer has with no attempt to address a solution. And what we do a lot of the time is we challenge our teams. And, and I challenge listeners right now is go back and take a look at everything that you're working on and, and say, is it a solution or a feature or is it actually describing the problem? And if you take a look at it, about more than half the time, um, we find that that is actually a solution. So that's what we want you to do is go, go see if you've got actual problems you're working on. Yeah, I think that's very true for many of us. And a lot of innovation processes put an emphasis early on on the idea, right? And what's the idea you have? And then we're going to develop that into a product concept. And sometimes it kind of de-emphasizes the connection to the customer problem. Mm -hmm. And having a clear customer problem, what, what is the scope we are pursuing, is really important to us. So the convergent problem statement. Should we move on to the next one? You know, the next one is called actionable persona. And most teams that we work with nowadays, you know, their eyes kind of glaze over, oh my God, personas, right? We don't ever use them. They sit on the shelf or our UX department uses them, but we don't. And they're just, you know, they're, they might be these glossy 10 page laminated things that sort of sit on a shelf that look pretty, that, that really are lip service to the, the notion of a persona. Once you really do have a clear problem, you really want to know intimately who you're solving it for so that you can make some really good decisions about how you approach the design, how you how you prioritize feature sets. And so what we try to do in the book is redefine what personas are and democratize them so everyone can use them and everyone can build them right? We don't want it to just be this, you know, ivory tower sort of design house art artifact. We want it to be even a founder of a company who's trying to de de define, you know, his first year, you know, what's he going to, what's he going to release, right? We want to, we really wanted to sort of turn personas on their head and redefine them in a way that you can actually take them to a room and decide, uh, make a product decision really quickly, right? It's still the same, you know, represents an archetype of a certain sub sub segment in your base. It's still trying to get at who this person is, but we define it in a way we're using what we call character trait spectrums and different aspects of a human being that allow you to take action, really know 
oh, wow, because of this attitude or this behavior of this person or where they sit on a spectrum like tech phobic versus tech savvy, I can make some really quick decisions about my onboarding experience, for instance, right? So we really try to make these actionable, simple, and democratize them so that anyone can make them or create one and use them. Excellent. And I use the language of the ideal customer a lot. I love it. Yeah. And I'm with you and wanting to bring back the actionable persona. Um, Personas did, they started getting a bad rep for a a while. And I think one of the things that a lot of people just kind of intuitively push against in business is this notion that we're, we're restricting our market to a single person. Well, why would we possibly want to do that? And the idea isn't that we're excluding others. We're providing focus so we can actually attract, attract the right customer, the ideal customer. And guess what happens? Others come along too, right? Well, and you're delighting the one that you want to attract, right? You want to delight that person, not just throw some features out to this one that also serves this one that also serves this one. It's It's a scary leap to make, but in every case, the more focused you're on, you are, and the, and the more defined you are and who you're targeting and the better decisions you're going to be making and the better delight or the more delight you'll be, will, will result. Very good. Okay. So actionable persona help us in my language with that ideal customer that we're trying to focus on, solve their problem for and reach them in our messaging as well. And then I think the next one is individualized needs. This one's a little bit more nuanced. And and the way that we want you to think about it is we just talked right now with this ideal world, you know, one customer and one problem, and, and you'd be merely happily solving that, but that's not reality. Like there's tons of problems and you know, we've got tons of customer segments that we want to go after. And the reason we brought in individualized needs is that we wanted to address exactly that. Because in this complex world, what happens is that if you've done observation and you get to insight and you declare the needs, people tend to blend them all together and then start working through them or look for commonalities between customer A segment and customer B segment and somehow think if we can do some of these common pieces, then we're going to make both groups happy. And what we want to do is say, don't stop doing that. The way that you get to delight is that you read it clearly and you can almost think about it as silos of a persona and a problem statement, group them together and really understand the needs around that particular individual set. And then you can step up and you can bring in other factors such as what's the business trying to do? Are you trying to keep a group of customers? Are you trying to grow really quickly? Is revenue the issue? And then you can actually make decisions about where to start. Because at the end of the day, groundwork is really helping you get to a place where you can make a call confidently for a group of customers and get everyone in the company aligned against this particular decision that you've made. So individualized needs means the idea of putting a set, a customer, a problem, and their needs together in a way that that allows you to make decisions. Yeah, and I'll add to that, right? You're going to have many customer or many companies that we work with are like B2B, right? You might have two to three user personas in addition to your buyer, in addition to your decision maker. We want you to think in silos, like Vidya said, right? If I were to solve that problem for that person, what are their big priority? What are their issues, right? What's their environmental context that I need to keep in mind as I'm designing their experience? And you do this for each persona. So that at the end of the day, 
you know what trade-offs you can make based off of strategy, revenue generation, whatever your overlying criteria is, you are making conscious decisions between the different personas in order to bring together the the solution that's most strategic, most you know growth oriented, whatever, right? But the focus is really on these almost siloed looks before you go and you make a bunch of decisions about what features you're going to do and how you're going to do them. So a tool that I find really helpful that helps me with many things, I think, including this, and I'm throwing it out to make sure if I'm on the right page with, with everything I'm hearing, um, is Ashmariah's The Lean Canvas. And it starts with, it's based on the business canvas. So people might be more used to that. And it starts with the customers on one side and then the problem they have on the other side. And I, I've used it a lot of times with teams to kind of get everyone on the same page. What are we, who are we talking about surveyed and how are we do, going to do that? Anytime we find a different customer segment, I say, okay, time to pull out a new canvas. Excellent. And let's treat that separately. Absolutely right. right? Same idea? Yeah, absolutely right. And that's really important, right? And to, to keep the needs separate and not mix them together. And even if we find sometimes, you know, same needs, same problem, same solution, but the way that we they, that they think about the problem is a little bit different, yeah. well, then we want to capture that differently for our messaging. Yeah. And the pain they might be feeling in certain aspects of the problem are different, right? And their environmental context might be different. You might need to use different verbiage to get their attention. Absolutely. I love this. And we actually teach the Lean Canvas in, in, in our, in our course to, to product Mm -hmm. managers to help them do the same thing. We love that. Okay. So we've gotten through a kind of a high level overview of the, these pillars, the foundation, and then the practices is the next part. And we're going to leave that to everyday innovators listening uh, to go check out your book. As listeners know, we do like innovation quotes around here. And I asked uh, you guys to bring us what you have. If you could share those and tell us uh, what you mean by what they mean to you, really, that'd be great. I'll start with one that's more generic, and then Heather is going to toss out one that's from our book. My one is from Steve Jobs, which I think, you know, is, is someone that we always look to from, from an innovation perspective. And the one that the quote that I love the most is innovation comes from saying no to a thousand things. And it speaks to everything that we just talked about right now. There's, there's always too much to do. There's always ideas out there. And there's always hundreds of people telling you, well, have you thought about and what about this? And I think this is more important. And I think the hardest thing about being a product manager is, is being that wall and saying no with confidence and what we, what I love about this is I think at Groundwork is a way to, to get to that place. So I'm like, yes, that's exactly right. This is how you say no that, that allows you to make decisions with the customer in mind every single time. So that one's mine. Mine is from Theodore uh, Levitt. He was a Harvard professor and uh, economist, I think in the 20s, I want to say. But I love this quote. And we, we quote it in the book, people don't buy a quarter inch drill. Uh, they want a quarter inch hole. And that really epitomizes, you know, everything we talk about, which is get to know what your customer wants to do. What, what are they trying to accomplish and, and understand the problem at hand before you go and decide on what you're going to build. And I think, you know, again, we, we actually go really deep into this idea of 
why would you want a quarter inch hole? And we, you know, in our book, we, we actually go into multiple examples of why you'd want a quarter inch hole. And in each, in each situation, you might build something completely different, right? And so that one is really near and dear to our heart. <laughs> Yeah, both are great quotes. I appreciate you sharing those. And we, we have so many things we can say yes to. We need our focus and understanding the actual problem, the, the, the job right. to be done in that language that people want to, want to accomplish. What is that hole for? That, that's a great quote to go to as well. For people that would like to find out more about Product Rebels, the, the work that you both do with that organization, uh, maybe just connect with you to you have that connection and, and follow up. And also, obviously, your book. How can we make that happen? Yeah, you could go to our website, productrebels.com. There's actually a link to buy our book from there. We're also on Amazon under Groundwork, Getting Better at Making Better Products. You can contact Vidya or I, and we're Heather or Vidya at productrebels.com. Pretty easy. Our offering is also on our website as well. And we, we love to work with teams. So yeah. anyone who's interested, we, we have taken Groundwork and we've broken it up into six weeks where we do this blended learning where instead of being cases like we talk about in the book, it's actually working on your product. That's really kind of like what brings Heather and I to light is when we can roll up our sleeves and, and apply groundwork with our clients on their products and sort of show them how they can make decisions more effectively and how they can narrow down to the problem and how they can articulate that customer. That's really fun. And it's about three hours a week over the course of six weeks. And, and I promise you, we're really, really fun coaches. <laughs> Excellent. Based on this interview, I, I would expect that to be the case. So really wonderful experience both of you have. Kind of sharing that life experience with us in the book is really valuable. Appreciate you giving us an overview, a little bit of groundwork and how we can make better use of that. And I want product rebels to know I'm thinking good thoughts for your, your organization, where that goes, and being able to help these teams get better because having better teams lets them develop better products, which makes everything better, right? The organization is better. Our customers are happier. And that's as product people, we really want to see that happen. Well, thank you, Chad, for the time. Really appreciate it. Thanks again for listening. This is where product leaders and managers become product masters, gaining practical knowledge, influence, and confidence. So you'll create products customers love. Find the written notes of the discussion with Heather and Vidya at theeverydayinnovator.com slash 327. Keep innovating. Thank you for listening to The Everyday Innovator, which teaches product managers to become product masters. For more resources, please visit theeverydayinnovator.com.